Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Glad to hear it. Things are good. Things are good. Um, I'm struck sometimes uh, listening to the worship set that Dan puts together. I had a, used to have debates with a uh, philosophy of religion professor um, during my undergrad, and he was, a, he was an atheist, and we used to argue about miracles all the time. Um, and I made a really big case and wrote a paper on what I called miracles of happenstance. Um, they're those miracles that seem like miracles only to us um, because of the circumstance that we're in. Um, <clears throat> and I'll tell you, uh, we do talk about the sermon, um, and of course we put, Dan will put together songs and scriptures that have to go along with the main theme of the sermon, but we don't talk about them in depth. And it always amazes me, and it always seems incredibly miraculous and God-given when he mentions scripture and mentions chapters of scripture and concepts that I'm going to specifically, specifically talk about. So if you ever wonder if what we're doing here at this church is ordained by God, I tell you there's no question, there's no question that God has his hand on this service. I just thought I'd share that with you. It always, it always strikes me listening. So I was putting together this sermon series. Um, we've already, I've already preached one sermon out of this series. Um, it's called Church Questions. And uh, I started out by, by talking to my own kids um, about questions. Um, and what I found was pretty ironic was that the questions that my kids had about God and about church are the same questions that adults had when I talked to them about God and the church. Um, it seems like the questions that we have, even as children, stick with us, um, and that we kind of have this constant nagging in our hearts, no matter if we've grown up in the church, our new converts, or, or what have you. Um, there are these things that just kind of nag at us pretty constantly. Um, I know in the face of trouble and difficult times, one of the questions that we often have is, why is evil a thing? Why does evil exist? The best formulation of the question I've found is, if God exists, why does he let bad things happen? Um, I heard that from a child, uh, and I, I went with it. Um, we were talking about God and about good and bad, and, and he wanted to know, um, if God is good, then why, why does he let bad things happen to people? Good question, right? Um, it's one of those questions I hear from adults and that I hear from kids. Why does he let bad things happen? Well, I think we need to start by talking about what evil actually is. When we talk about bad things, what, is, what does that mean? Um, philosophers and theologians actually agree on a few things. Um, one of those things is that evil comes normally in two forms. Uh, the first thing is a natural evil, um, like hurricanes, illness, uh, famine caused by drought, those sort of things, uh, stuff that we really don't have anything to do with on our own, stuff that just kind of happens naturally. Uh, what do you make of natural evil? That's kind of a question. You know, if, if God is good, then why do hurricanes come and kill people and stuff like that? Um, 
because that's nobody's choice. The, the simplest answer for natural evil um, I found is in 1 John. It says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Quite simply put, when Adam and Eve fell from grace, the earth fell as well. We live in a fallen earth. Um, bad things happen on the planet uh, because there's evil on the planet now. Um, one of the simplest illustrations I found comes from Genesis. God's warning Adam about what's going to happen now that they're in trouble. And one of those things is that he's now going to have to till and to work and toil over the earth, which leads us to believe that before the fall, um, plants, vegetation, all of that just grew out of the ground. Um, no fertilization, no weeding. Um, if you've ever had a garden, weeds are pretty much evil, right? <laughs> if you've ever had to fight against that. Um, so but before the fall, that wasn't, that wasn't a thing. We didn't have to do that. We didn't have to pay attention. We just walked along and grabbed an apple or, of course, got to be careful about what you... <sighs> right? Okay. Um, but the other type of evil, evil is the evil that I think most people talk about when they say, why does God let bad things happen? And that's, that's the concept of moral evil. Moral evil. <clears throat> things like murder and things like anger and things like the Holocaust, events like shootings. Um, moral evil is when someone makes a choice and that choice impacts other people. They've made a moral decision and that affects someone else. So I think that's the, that's the real question. Why does God allow moral evil to happen and the natural conclusion for a lot of people is that the existence of moral evil and the existence of a good and loving God are incompatible. So in the minds of many, the existence of moral evil means that God is not real. That's called the problem of evil. You can research that phrase, the problem of evil, um, and find absolute reams and libraries full of information. It's a philosophical question. It's a theological question. There have been gallons of ink spilled on the problem of evil. And it's this idea that there, is, there seems to be um, a battle between our ability to hold in our minds that there is a God that loves us, but that also at the same time we see all these bad things happen. That's the problem of evil. The argument goes something like this. Premise one, God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He's all-powerful. God exists outside of space and time. He literally molds the fabric of existence, the really lofty concepts that we could muse about poetically if we want to, but the, the truth of the matter is that, that God holds all power in his hands, and I think we can agree with that, right? We can agree with that first, first, pres, first uh, premise. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The second premise is this, that God is all-knowing. Uh, the other word for that is omniscient. In Isaiah 40, we see, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it? 
that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Isaiah 40. It's a rhetorical question. It's a series of, of questions that are being asked almost like a joke. Who taught God right from wrong? Who taught God how to be? No one, right? Certainly not me, you know? You're supposed to read this passage in Isaiah and think, well, of course, no one taught God those things. He knows everything. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. The third premise is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. He's literally everywhere. Um, the language that's used, uh, the original language that's used, has this concept of watching from a high place. Um, it's where a lot of times we get this concept that God is somehow above us, like physically in the heavens somewhere. The language actually tells us that, that God is coming from a high place, like a tower or a mountain, and he's looking down on us. He sees everything. It's always amazed me how when people go to do something bad, when they go to sin, when they want to do something they know they shouldn't do, they hide. They physically hide. In reality, they're only hiding from you and I because God sees everything. Jonah ran and hid on a planet created by God who sees everything. It's absurd when you think about it that way because I think we can all agree that we think of God as being everywhere. <clears throat> the fourth premise is this. God is good. I'm not even going to have to, I'm not even going to read a scripture. Like, otherwise we're not here, right? Who gets up on a Sunday morning and comes to a place and worships a God that is anything but good? We think that, obviously, right? We're not going to come and worship some God who smites us and who, you know, like, we, we know that the things that God does for us are good, that's why we're here. That's why we praise him. It's why we sing all these songs. God is good. I, th I think we can all agree. The fifth premise is this, and yet still evil exists. We know that. I just gave you a bunch of examples of how evil exists. We know that. That's the fifth premise. Evil exists. All of these things are true about God, and evil exists. And so the problem of evil has a conclusion, and the conclusion is one of these two things. This next slide here. Therefore, the mere existence of evil is logically incompatible with the existent, existence of an omnipotent good God. So the, the existence of evil, which we all agreed on, doesn't make sense if God is good and he's all-powerful, right? Or the other conclusion, logically, for the philosopher looking at this problem of evil is the fact that evil actually exists. The fact that it exists is good evidence for thinking that God doesn't exist. So the philosopher working through this problem, working on these premises that we've all agreed to, has come to this conclusion that if evil exists, then the God that we worship is either not all-powerful, he's not who we think he is, or that he doesn't exist at all. <clears throat> a lot of 
a lot of people know um, my story, that I started out um, pre-law, poli-sci, wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and then I answered a several-year-old calling from God to go into the, to go into the ministry. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that instead of finishing in poli-sci, what I had actually done my first two years in was philosophy. Um, and that was really tough because philosophy relies on logic. And what I've just given you is a very informal form of what's called a logical proof. And I cannot tell you over the two years as a philosophy major how many times this proof was given to me over and over and over again, so much so that even though I had grown up in the most faithful of Southern Baptist churches, I began to doubt myself the existence of God. It's impressive evidence, and it deserves an impressive answer. Agreed? A lot of people have talked about the answer to this problem and the answer to these conclusions. I think one of the most impressive um, and easily understood is actually a very recent example. In the, in the 1970s, a man by the name of Alvin Plantinga, Plantinga, P-L-A-N-T-I-N-G-A, if you're curious, he is one of the smartest men to have existed probably in the last thousand years or so. He is definitely smarter than I am. Um, he is definitely smarter than the vast majority of people I know. Um, and lucky for you and me, Alvin was a Christian. <laughs> Alvin did a lot of writing about the problem of evil. And he came up and formulated this concept called the free will defense. And it goes something like this. God's creation of persons with morally significant free will is something of tremendous value. God could not eliminate much of the evil and suffering in this world without thereby eliminating the greater good of having created persons with free will with whom he could have relationships and who are able to love one another and do good deeds. In essence, Alvin is saying this, I know it's easy to come to the conclusion that evil exists in the world and that we think of God as good, and so those two things seem compatible, but what you fail to recognize is the fact that God has given us a choice. The free will defense is saying this, it's saying God doesn't ordain bad things to happen to people. What he does is he loves us and he wants us to love him back and the only way to do that is by giving us the choice to do it. The real question is what do we do with that choice? That's what we're going to talk about. <clears throat> Small proof of my own. Let's talk about some facts. We have free will, okay? I'll stand up here and we can talk all day long about free will and predestination. And, and, but the Bible is very, very clear about the fact that we have choices in life. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You have a choice. 
It's so, so evident that it's just implicit in that, in that Galatians scripture. You have a choice. We know that. You can choose to do bad things. You can indulge the flesh, or you can use that choice to love one another. You have a choice. God provides a world for us that does include these momentary pleasures. You know, we can, you know, I can stand up here with a plate of chocolate cake and a plate of asparagus. <laughs> and innately, we know that one of those is better than the, the chocolate cake, is better than the other. <laughs> no, one of us is, obviously, is better for us, and one of them just tastes good right now, but, you know. <clears throat> but when given the opportunity, we choose poorly. I wouldn't say nine times out of ten, but a lot we choose poorly. And it doesn't take much to think back in your own lives when given this opportunity. We've chose the greater of two evils, I guess would be the phrase. Anyone who's raised a child or watched a child for more than five seconds recognizes that you can tell them over and over and over and over again Stuff that's best for them. Stuff like, don't run out into the road. And then they run out into the road. And then you're like, hey, cars, you know. When given the opportunity, we choose poorly. There's something innate, something inside of us. Even when given the best opportunities in life, growing up with the most money and a car and the nicest house and the best environment, sometimes people still choose poorly in life. There's something inside. It's that will. There's something inside us that says, yeah, you could have asparagus. When was the last time you had chocolate cake? Do you know how good chocolate cake is? It's great. You should have chocolate cake. And then everyone had chocolate cake. And I'm pretty sure after this sermon, everyone's going to leave and go get chocolate cake. When given the opportunity, we choose poorly. So... My mini little proof ends in this assumption. Evil exists because we've been given free will. Thank you, Alvin Plantinga, for that, that information. To drive the point home further, and this is what I was talking about earlier, you need look no further than literally the first few pages of God's word, the fall of man found in Genesis 3. And I'm just going to run through this story real fast because I think it encapsulates this concept better than just about anything else. Genesis 3, 2, the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Very clear. Don't run out into the street, Right? That's, that's God's equivalent of, of don't play in traffic. Anything in this garden you touch, anything, it's yours, but not that. What was it? Uh, walk the line, Jerry Lee Lewis said, said oh, he said uh, God put a tree in the garden. He said, don't think about touching it. He said, don't think about thinking about touching it. He said, don't touch it. Don't touch the tree. 
Like, don't touch it, you know? Of all the trees in the garden, don't touch that one. God gives us choices. And in the same breath, a consequence. The best consequence, most clear-cut, black and white, don't touch it or you die. Not don't touch it or you're grounded. Don't touch it or you're dead. Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that fruit, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, so it looked good, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Okay. <laughs> God says, don't touch a tree. And the next thing we do as people is walk up to it and go, God, that looks good. I think I'll have some. <laughs> like literally within a minute of explaining this, don't touch the tree or you die. Adam and Eve go, I'll have, I'll have some of that. Genesis 3.13, then the Lord God said to man, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Our fifth child, not me, you know. Who did it? Not me. When I catch him, he's in trouble. She blames the serpent, right? God eventually curses the serpent. But what he does next is address Adam and Eve. Because they're the ones really in trouble. They're the ones that made the choice, right? Verse 3 or verses 23 through uh, 23. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Folks, there is no better argument for free will than the very existence of evil. And by evil, I mean those choices that we make that are against God. God gives us, in the beginning, very clear and very present instructions with very clear and very present consequences. And just because the fruit looked good, we broke his law. You see, Satan has both knowledge and eternal life. He was with the hosts of heaven. He lives as long as any other angel lives. But we see how that turned out for him, right? We see what this concept of having both knowledge and long life can do to someone. It's corrupting. That's why God cast us out. He loves his creation, you know? That's why, that's why we were pushed out of the garden. It was for our own good. Yeah, we're punished. Yeah, we suffer, we toil, we deal with disease and pain, and yes, eventually death. But we don't suffer the same fate that Satan suffers by having to live with this knowledge and being cursed for eternity. I think, I think the important thing to take from this is the fact that in the end, when we struggle with why these things happen to us, we feel like God has abandoned us 
And the truth of the matter is that God doesn't abandon us. We abandon God. In these times, in these struggles uh, with Adam and Eve, he didn't just kick them out because he could or because he wanted to or because he was mean. It's because ultimately they turned their back on him. Bad things happen because when given the opportunity, we choose poorly. And I, 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 I talk to people when I write these sermons specifically because that's, that's the whole point of this series is to answer these questions that people have. And the one rebut that I hear constantly, but, 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 but James, but couldn't he have just, couldn't he have just said like, no one chooses bad things. Couldn't he have just made it to where we don't choose evil? Is that free will? If I, if I put an earpiece in your ear and you wake up every morning and I say, okay, now get out of bed, go put on your red shirt, kiss your wife on the cheek, eat the eggs and the toast, pat your kids on the head, get in your car and go, is that a life at all? No, you want to get up and you want to wear the red shirt because you, like you like the red shirt, you know? And you want to eat the eggs and the bacon. I guess it's bacon now. <laughs> eat the eggs because that's, you know, that's better. You want to eat the eggs and the bacon or the toast because that's nourishing to your body and it's what you like to eat. And when you, you kiss your husband or your wife on the cheek, you don't want to do it because someone is telling you to do it in your ear or because someone's forcing you to do it. It's not love if it's not a choice. So when you say, couldn't he have made it to where we don't choose evil things? No, because logically, if we can't choose evil things, we can't choose good things. If we can't choose evil, then we can't choose love. Here's the good news. Romans 6.18, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We do trade one master for another. We talk about this concept of Christian freedom all the time. Ultimately, the scripture does tell us you are trading one for another. We live our lives, even after salvation, under this constant burden of temptation to sin and to choose poorly and to choose evil. And when given the choice, a lot of times we still choose to sin. But when we choose to follow Christ, we choose the best master possible. Because he chooses right every time. What a master to have. To know that every single time, he's going to do the best thing for you and the best thing for those around you. One of the many things that's special about God, we talked about the fact that he's everywhere, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful. One thing in particular is that there is this quality about him that allows not only him to consistently turn from evil, but it's so powerful, it allows us to turn from evil every single time. It's an intangible, indescribable quality that makes God good. It's the fact that he is good. Don't let that pass you by. When I say he is good, I don't mean that like, like James is a pastor. 
Yeah, I am. Um, I write sermons. Um, I look at study plans. We have meetings. I get up here some Sundays and I preach. I am a pastor. It does not, however, consume the entirety of who I am. Sometimes I'm a father. I have another job, right? So when I say sometimes I am this, we know that, that that's not all encompassing, right? But when I say God is good, I mean he is the source. He's the wellspring. There is literally no good in existence in the universe that does not come from him. When I say God is good, he's the very embodiment of everything that is good. Guys, it's about choices. If we choose him, we can't choose wrong. This is just the truth of the matter. He's the only good thing in a world full of bad choices. Listen, we can get up every morning. I know a lot of the people in this church. I know your daily lives. I know where you live. I know where some of you work. And we have very similar lives. So I know the choices that you're faced with every single day. Because I face those choices every single day. And the choice is this. Do I get up and I give my wife a cursory peck on the cheek and tell her, see you later, I'll see you at lunch, see you at five, whatever. And do I pat my kids on the head and say, be good for your mom? I'm thinking about work, and I go and I get in my car, and I don't say hi to the neighbors, and I drive to my office, and I sit in my workspace, or my office, or my cubicle, and I just do my job, and I don't talk to people, and I watch the clock, and I wait for it to roll around, and I get back in my car, I go back to my home, I don't say anything to anyone else, I get back in the house, I make sure my chores are done, make sure food's on the table, put the kids to bed, and sit down, and watch an hour of Netflix. Those are all choices. All choices that we can make. I know because those are the same choices that I can make every day. This isn't admonishment for you. This is a reminder for me. Do I do that or do I get up and I roll over and I tell my wife, I love you so much and I'm so thankful that God put you in my life. And I go downstairs and I see my kids And I don't see them as a burden or something to take care of. I see them as a gift from God, every single last one of them. And I go and I get in a car that I'm so thankful for because God has put that in my life. And I've I've been given the ability to buy a car and I can go to a job that I have. And not everyone's been blessed with a job. And I have an amazing job that pays for my family. And I have vacation time. And I can interact with people. And these interactions with people, they can bear fruit. And I can get back in my car and be so excited to get back and see my family because they're a blessing. And I spend my time doing things like shepherding and teaching my children and making meals that nourish their bodies and spending time in God's word and doing things like writing this sermon. I can do all of those things because it's a choice. Without Christ, nine times out of 10, we choose poorly. And out of those poor choices comes absolute evil. That sounds like a stretch, but it's the absolute truth because if it doesn't come from the source of good, then it's 
got to be wrong. It's got to be evil. Church, we know we have a choice. We see them every single day. My advice to you, not some long application or some uh, journal that you need to keep or an exercise that you need to do or a set of scripture readings. My application to you and my advice to you this morning is simply this. You know you have a choice. Choose wisely. Choose wisely.